My name is Ben Greenfield, and on this episode of the Ben Greenfield Life Podcast. We are living in a world now that is very different than 30, 40 years ago when I was young. They're entering a world we maybe can't even fully comprehend. We've put a lot of our chips in on this nature connection piece, clearly. Is there a risk? Yeah, but gosh, I mean, what's the opposite? We raise them with technology from birth. Is there a risk there? Absolutely. And would I be more worried if I had done that? Heck yeah. Faith, family, fitness, health, performance, nutrition, longevity, ancestral living, biohacking, and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show. Bon charge. Love to say that. Bon charge. Holistic wellness brand with a huge range of evidence-based products to optimize your life in every way. You've heard me talk about the importance of managing your environment, your air, your light, your water, your electricity, with things like low blue lighting and blue blocks, full-spectrum lighting that mimics sunlight. You've heard me talk about EMF protection, things like air tubes instead of regular earphones, laptop mats, harmonizing stickers, protection blankets, protection beanies, the kind of stuff I wear on airplanes. This company, Boncharge, they've even got cold and heat therapy massage guns, ice roller massage balls, ice rollers, like anything you need to make your environment or your body better, they just about have it. Fantastic, endless catalog of premium wellness products that allow you to adopt ancestral ways of living in our modern day world, and they're given all my listeners 15% off. You go to bondcharge.com slash greenfield and use coupon code greenfield to save 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E dot com slash greenfield. Use code greenfield to save 15%. Have fun shopping at Bondcharge, folks. Let's talk about what I would consider to be brain food. Vegan, non-GMO, gluten-free brain food packed with 28 of the most research-backed nootropics on the planet to promote focus and mood and drive and the best mental energy of your life. Because with my family life and my fitness goals and my career and planes all the time, everywhere, I can't afford mental exhaustion. And I research health and nutrition as a living, yeah, but to keep my body and mind capable of handling all, I throw stuff at it to help it out. And one thing that I really rely on when I'm mentally exhausted and burnt out is this formula called Quality of Mind. It's well-made. It's a staple of brain health for me and for many others. It's allowed me to be incredibly productive even when I'm lacking sleep. And it's made by the brilliant minds at Neurohacker Collective who appear to be eating their own dog food, so to speak, because they're putting out some pretty intelligently designed products. So what they've got for you is 100 bucks off of Qualia Mind. And you get an extra 15% off of your first purchase from Neurohacker. Here's how. Go to neurohacker.com, N-E-U-R-O hacker.com slash Ben for up to 100 bucks off right now. Use code BGF at checkout. That'll get you an extra 15% off your purchase. So neurohacker.com slash Ben for 100 bucks off. Use code BGF at checkout for an extra 15% off your purchase. Well, folks, one of the biggest predictors how long you live and how good you feel while living is your metabolic health. Metabolic health can be difficult to measure, but the single best way to measure how your daily decisions are impacting your metabolic health is indeed by tracking your blood glucose. Monitoring my blood glucose is one of the most important things I do to maintain 
peak vitality and longevity, I can find out everything. How does ice cream affect my blood glucose? Cold, an argument, an email, you name it. Poor blood glucose control is associated with short-term outcomes like daily energy levels, weight management, and even sexual function. But then there's chronic conditions like diabetes and heart disease and Alzheimer's, all of which are related to blood sugar levels. So that's where this company called Levels comes in. Levels has an app that interprets your blood glucose data provides you a simple score after you eat a meal, allows you to see how different foods affect you, and then gives you this personalized diet that's right for you. Obviously, you don't need me standing beside you or level to tell you that stick of cotton candy that you're eating at the fair is going to spike your blood glucose. But maybe you don't know what the difference between, say, like eating or not eating before you do a sauna session would create. Or say, you know, lifting weights at the gym and having whey protein versus rice protein. You know, there's all sorts of little things you don't think about that you can really dig into with this Levels app. So go to levels.link slash Ben, and they're going to give you two free months of the Levels measurement when you use my link. Levels.link forward slash Ben. Well, folks, one of my guests on today's show is someone I've had the pleasure of interviewing in the past on the podcast. I, I think, uh, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been you've been on my show a couple of times now, right? That's right. Twice before, okay. Ben. Twice. I'm glad somebody's keeping track. So, so Tim, <laughs> if, if you had heard his previous episode, you already know, has the last name Corcoran. And Tim is a guy who... I first met when he visited my home to walk me and my wife and sons through our new property in Spokane, Washington, to teach us what we could eat without dying. And that's that's I think the best way I can I can sum it up. <laughs> he walked us around and, and uh, basically gave us a tour of all the wild edible plants on our land, what we could do with them, and how we could we could implement them in our in our wild plant menu from organ grape to wild mint and nettle and all sorts of, of goodies all the way down to dandelion that grow on our property. And he did such a great job teaching that I I later got super interested in the fact that he puts on wilderness survival and nature immersion camps and clinics right here in Spokane and the surrounding area in North Idaho. My sons, I think gosh, what were they, like six or seven when they first started working with you, Tim? Yeah, I think it was about six years old, yeah. Yeah, and, and Tim has been one of their key mentors through his Twin Eagles Wilderness School and also through some one-on-one work that he's done with my sons to bring them through a, a wilderness awareness course called Kamana. And you may have also heard me talk about how sometimes River and Taryn and I go off and do these father-son wilderness survival camps, which are epic and one of the the, I think the most meaningful bonding experiences I've ever had with them. And those are also through Tim's Twin Eagles Wilderness School, where he facilitates, you know, deep nature connection, mentoring and cultural restoration and inner tracking. And, you know, even does things like uh, wilderness vision quests for, for adolescents and for adults. And so my own sons have been going through their rites of passage under the, the tutelage and guidance of Tim. So it's been fantastic to get to know Tim. Tim over the past few years, but I've never had Tim's wife on. I first met Tim's wife when she was making us just amazing, luxurious camp food out at uh, Medicine Circle. And her name is Janine, and she is also on the call with us today. So welcome, Janine. Thank you. 
Janine kind of works hand in hand with Tim, probably keeps him out of trouble a little bit like my wife does for me. Oh, yeah. And between uh, between Tim and Janine, they are the parents of two sons themselves who they have raised in, I would say, a very outside the box way and in a way that really fosters deep nature connection. I think this whole idea of fostering a deep nature connection, especially in our youth, a deep nature connection that goes particularly beyond VR headsets and uh, churning out school essays using chat GPT and spending copious amounts of time on TikTok is something that's pretty important in this day and age for creating a creative, free-thinking, resilient young human being who actually is fully equipped to go out and change the world and also to appreciate everything that this great earth has to offer beyond screens. So Tim and Janine, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us, Ben. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of my reasons, the prime reason for getting you on is you guys were featured in my parenting book, Boundless Parenting. You had a whole chapter there and just went into you know vision crests and rites of passages and nature connection, everything that you do with your sons. And so I want to get into some of that stuff and just open up a discussion about how we can foster nature connection, not only for ourselves, but also for our children. And just, just for those of you listening in, I'm going to put show notes for everything that we talk about, including my previous episodes with Tim at bengreenfieldlife.com slash Corcoran's, C-O-R-C-O-R-A-N-S, Tim and Janine's last name, bengreenfieldlife.com slash Corcoran's. Now, t- tell me about tell me about your sons. And, you know, this is one of those marriage counseling ventures where both of you being on the podcast at the same time, you guys get to elbow each other and choose who gets to reply to which question. But But go ahead, whoever wants to start, tell me about your sons. Okay, well, we have two sons. Their names are River and Forrest. And River is 16. Forrest is 13. So they're now fully, officially teenagers. And what can I say? They they want to get going on things. Like they always, they, they really don't want to sit around. They want to live life fully. That's what I've noticed about them. And I think there's been a foundation of their childhood like that too. Mm-hmm of just living life to the fullest, finding, you know, and discovering adventure. And so what can I say? Parenting feels a little bit like a side hustle. Like (laughs) they're always, they're always busy. You guys have had a very unique method of educating them. And I I realize that this is a, a question that could go all sorts of places, but tell me about how you've raised your sons, particularly in the way that their, what one might call their schooling has been different. Yeah. I mean, I think we can both speak to this, Ben, as a background and probably foundational element to their education. Uh, we really view education very differently, I think, than than the modern adult here in the United States. We don't see education as something that happens in a building that you go send your kids off to and then it's done at three o'clock or whatnot. We really hold that life is one great journey of learning. We consider ourselves lifelong learners and have intentionally raised our sons to be lifelong learners. So as such, from the very beginning, from pre-birth even, we were very intentional about the educational process that they were going to go through. So as a background piece, right, Janine and I, we started Twin Eagles Wilderness School here in, in Idaho in Sandpoint. That was 2005. River was born in 06. So we actually started the school a year before our first son was born. And it's not just about creating classes, as you know, but for our listeners, it's not just about classes you go to and you go and then it's you learn what you learn and you come back. But our effort has really been to create a conscious community. 
and build long-term relationships. We know that some people are going to come and go, but we also know that some people would come and stay. And many people have, including you guys, your whole family. And so over the years, these relationships deepen, right? I mean, I have some kids I've mentored for, we've mentored for 15 plus years. I've, I've run into some of them, by the way, as, as helpers or whatever you want to call them at, at the camps. My own, my own sons are, are now starting into, you know, some of your mentoring for, for being teachers and they're just, they're different people. And I want, I want to give you a chance to keep going on how you educated your own sons, but yeah, it's just this, this maturity and gentleness and patience and mindfulness that you don't see a lot in, you know, in kids these days. It's very interesting to see, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old man or woman, a young man or woman who's gone through your program and been educated, you know, using a lot of these nature-based methods. They're just different people in a good way. So yeah, I'm right there with you. And it's so funny because we get a lot of parents, a lot of moms, frankly, who are like, oh my God, where do you find these MIT? Where do you find these these teenage helpers at your programs? Like, can I hire them to be my babysitter? Uh, we get that a lot. And I'm always kind of chuckling. I say, no, you don't understand. We didn't find them. We helped guide them to We this made point. them. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a humble man. I, I, yeah. There's obviously a lot of other influences on these individuals besides just Janine and I far outside of Twin Eagles, but we have had an influence. And so what happens, right, Ben, when you get a whole community of these people? What happens when you've got teenagers like this? What happens when you've got young adults, when you've got families, when you've got adults, other kids, elders? And those people all have a longstanding relationship. Suddenly, we're bringing back the, the essence of village, right? We're not living in a small village with 150 people, but we are bringing these relationships back. And so we did that intentionally to form a foundation within which our sons could be raised. That from the, the vision was that from birth, they could come up with that kind of community surrounding them. So back to your question about education, we hold that a cultural context is really the ultimate education. And yes, on top of that, we still had to deal with, you know, core competencies like you know, math, English, history, et cetera. So and maybe I'll let you, Janine, speak to that because you've really taken that that side on with homeschooling and unschooling. Well, I'll just add something, though, Ben, to what you said. You said just a few minutes ago, you said we made them. And what I wanted to respond to with that is the idea that culture is going to happen, whether we like it or not, whether we plan for it or not, or schedule it or intend for it, culture is just going to happen. So when we started raising our sons, we decided we wanted to intentionally craft culture around them mm -hmm. rather than just say, well, you know, wherever we go, culture is just kind of happening. We're kind of at the whim of it. Mm -hmm. um, instead, we decided to craft culture around them. What did that look like from an early age when you started them into one might call school. Did you guys have a mix of books and nature time? Was it time spent with elders or what did it look like exactly? And we, we have time for you to go into the nitty gritty details if you want to. Actually, I was just meeting with a family yesterday and we were discussing this very thing about inputs. Okay. So when I, when I look at any learner, but in particular, my sons, I started with this knowledge that I need to be clear on what their inputs are. And when I say inputs, I mean, what are they sensing? What are they seeing? What are they hearing? What information are they taking in? There's lots of different ways that they do take in information and receive inputs. And so 
I was very clear starting out, both of us were very clear that their inputs would need to be nature oriented. So it's not a moral issue here about whether something is good or bad, you know, it's just about choices. Mm -hmm. And so we, we chose choices like, for example, a book. Um, I was just talking with his family yesterday about the types of books that my sons were raised on. And one of them happens to be a book all about waterfowl. Mm-hmm. And there's no words. There's no words in the book. It's only, it's a picture book. And they loved this book probably till like they were 10. Okay. We read this book a lot. And it wasn't even something we read because it didn't have words. We read the pictures and then they could interpret it themselves. You know, that's classic like board book type stuff. But this wasn't actually a board book. It was more like a magazine and there was tons of pages. And every single picture was an illustration accurate of all the waterfowl species of where we live. So they're not just taking in these kind of random, inaccurate pictures of like ducks and birds and and things like that. They're actually seeing detailed pictures of great blue heron when they're little kids and like red-winged blackbirds and different kinds of ducks, like mallard ducks and whatnot. And so they're patterning on that over and over again, and they're actually gaining knowledge of place as they're growing. And so that that's an input that's worth preserving and, and continuing because they may not even realize it, but as they're getting older, they now have a knowledge of all the, the beings that live around them. And fast forward, Ben, 10 years or five, 10 years, they're both now skilled birders that are active in the community. They love birding. I mean, they are obsessed with birds. They know every single species, you know, four or 500 plus species, how to identify them by song, by sight, from up close, from a distance. Is that what it means to be a birder? I probably would have failed the quiz if you would have asked me without telling me because I, I think of a, you know, like holding a hawk with a glove and, and setting it off. But I think that's that's called uh, what, falconry? Something like that? That's falconry, yeah. Okay, so it's not falconry. What What's what's birding? Birding is, is the study of birds. It's it's the study of all the different species of birds. It's tracking which birds are present at which time of year, what seasonal differences are there, all of all of the natural history and the biology of birds. It's a whole thing. I mean, there's most birders out there, frankly, I think statistically are, are older, right? Oftentimes retired folks get into birding. It's a it's a significant and sizable passion that a lot of folks have out there. Now, does that include uh, bird language? I think you were telling me, maybe it was, it was your son River, actually speaks bird language. I wouldn't quite put it that way. Okay. <laughs> but yes, bir- bird language is something that we, uh, that we teach at Twin Eagles. And it's the idea that the sounds that birds make in the wild are not random, which they're not. They're communicating to one another. It's, it doesn't translate like in, in a spoken human language. Be sure, Ben, you can be 100% sure those birds are tracking all of the predators, all of the hazards, uh, food sources, weather conditions, where their shelter is. And if you can imagine all of the birds singing, it's actually one giant elaborate complex alarm system that's in three dimensions happening constantly in the wilderness. So if you have a bobcat coming through on the prowl hunting for lunch, all those ground birds are going to through their movement and their sound, they're going to announce Bobcat's presence if they know Bobcat is there. And if you know those birds and what their sounds sound like when things are normal or what we'd call baseline, you'll also be able to recognize, oh my gosh, when an event happens, an alarm, when they're alarming about the presence of Bobcat, you'll know that. 
And the old story, as the old story goes, you know, um, we can oftentimes predict animal uh, predator presence a minute or two prior to their arrival based on hearing bird sounds. And people will freak out. They'll think, wow. oh, my God, are you psychic? You know, and it's like, no, I'm, I'm just paying attention to patterns, just like any other learning process is a matter of understanding patterns. Right. So that that, too, has been a big passion for for River. So I think to consolidate, though, I'll just say it's not that River can speak bird language. It's that he can interpret it. Yeah. And he has, yeah. you know, he, he's not a master at it by any stretch of the imagination, but he, he definitely can interpret it. And when I talk about creating a culture around them and, you know, how they were raised in kind of unschooling, just as an example would be, we would have these maps and we'd keep them in the corner of a room and River would come in and we never said anything about the map. Okay. And the map had on it tracking all the birds, the time that they made communications, that they communicated something, they made a noise or a sound or an alarm or a companion call or a song or whatever it is. And, you know, we've got all the initials of all the birds, like American Robin has the initials AR, if you look in a field guide. He just happens to come by, happens to, meaning like it seemed just random, but like the poster was always there. And when he finally discovered it, it was he was like ready in the right place to see this map. And he said, what's this? And he pulled out the map and he started to ask all these questions because he knew all the codes of these birds like AR and, wow. you know, great blue heron and, and so on and so forth. Right. And so then I said, oh, very casual. I said, oh, you know, this is a map. We're tracking all the bird language that's happening. And the best time to do it is, you know, we get up at like before dawn, we get in place and we see it and then we map it all out. Well, so that was it. And then the next day without saying anything, him and his brother were up at like five or five 30 in the morning and they were gone. <laughs> and I did, I had no idea. And then by the time they came back, I got up and I see that they're not even there. And then when I came back, they had out a flip chart and they're mapping out their own experience of it. And I wow. didn't tell them to do that. So that's kind of the idea of where passion-based learning meets unschooling meets culture is created. You know, we create the conditions for culture to occur. Yeah. You know, we create the conditions for learning to occur by just setting up peripheral features, which is kind of like culture, you know, a contained experience and the conditions therein. Yeah. He just tapped into it. And now he's like taking his learning to the next level and he's doing it without just nothing but like a mere paper that was kind of like the power of suggestion that wow. sent him off to do it. Wow. Does that make sense? So just want to get in and give you a picture of what that unschooling could look like. And this could happen with any kind of subject. And then I'll know? just add briefly and let you respond here, Ben. But of course, it wasn't just maps in the corner. That was part of it. And yeah, there were field guides and there were journals and come on and journals and everything else. But there were also all of these people, people. surrounding yeah. him who also loved bird language, who also loved tracking animals, who loved making fire by friction, who loved harvesting wild plants. We intentionally surrounded them with people who cared, who were passionate about all these elements of nature. So of course, that was their input, back to Janine's point. So of course, they got to find out what their passions were. you know. And they've gotten really into birding, they've gotten really into hunting. One thing they haven't gotten so much into might have been, let's say, animal tracking. That just hasn't been a particularly big passion. And that's fine. We knew that we wanted to surround them with lots of possibilities holistically so that they could identify what's what, what are their hearts on fire about. 
and then support them in that journey. But when he found the map, he did ask, like, who made this map? And then we told him. And of course, he knew who those people were because they these people had seen River grow up. You say in the book that I think the way you phrased it was all the books and games and toys that they started off with from early childhood were from nature or nature focused. And that got me thinking, like, what about like math? or logic or um, something like that. Like, was it literally like every single thing that you go, you guys use for them from an early age was pretty much like that was your metric. It had to be something from nature. Pretty much. I mean, I wouldn't say it was rigid, but I'll give you an example. Like we had, we definitely had many math lessons where we'd go to the, the beach. We knew, I knew that there was like a sandbar space where there's sand. They'd, they'd go out, they would collect sticks and driftwood and then we would literally write out equations on the sand with it or they would use the sticks you know if you're saying two multiplied by four and then you have a line under the four and then you write the answer they would have to write it out in sticks so they're using their whole body it's a kinesthetic activity you know you're not just sitting there writing on a paper which yeah. is fine and 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 as they get older and they do more complex math they are doing that now actually right and then but yeah. it, it, they had a foundation of this particularly i would say ben prior to the age of 7 you know 7 and younger we really recognized as incredibly formative years where the the inputs are having a very significant effect on the child's brain on their whole being as they develop so we were pretty <laughs> idealistic i think at that in that at that phase and really pretty strong about trying to just maximize nature input and minimize, you know, I don't know, technology, for example. But yeah, I mean, by the time they were, I don't know, even 10 or 11, right, Janine? I mean, they were, they were, they had map books and they were doing standard map problems on pencil and paper as well. So it's not like it was a crazy <laughs> scene the way you might be imagining. But yeah, those, those first seven years, we really did our best to, to surround them with, with a lot of nature inputs. Interesting. Related to this idea of what you did with them from an early age, one thing that you say that you know we didn't get into a lot of detail about it in the book, but it really caught my attention. And I wanted to perhaps hear you clarify what this meant. You said that when they were born, they had a welcoming of life ceremony. Now, I know you guys are super into ceremony because every time we've done you know wilderness survival camps, it starts and ends with a special ceremony. When we p- went and picked up our sons from their rite of passage, there was a ceremony. There was an opening ceremony when we left them and, and kissed them goodbye, and then a closing ceremony. And they had another ceremony after that, separate from you guys, you know, a friends and family feast and, and giving away. And so I know you guys are, are big on ceremony, which I really respect, but, but what's the, particularly the welcoming of life ceremony at birth that you did? The welcoming of life ceremony, and I, we spoke about this in the book, but it's it's one of many different rites of passage that meet an individual's need as they grow and mature through life. So just for a little context, like a rite of passage would be some sort of a ceremony or ritual that marks the shift shifting of the major life phases. So we're talking about what? Birth, childhood, adolescence adulthood, maybe parenting or, or marriage in there, and then becoming an elder and then death. Like that's less than 10 major life phases that we each have. And so when you look at all the old cultures, and and for those who don't know, Janine and I were, have been really blessed to have a lot of traditional Native American and indigenous uh, mentors, which greatly influenced us and as well as all of our life's work. But if you look at the old cultures, Ben, you see that these old rites of, pa- these rites of passage were of course present. Now, when 
the modern person, of course, rites of passage are very rare these days. And when we do hear the word, it's either misunderstood or maybe it's connected with the adolescent rite of passage, right? Like the classic 13-year-old ROP. But really, a rite of passage is just any major ceremony to mark the transition between any major life phase. So a welcoming of life. So really, we might have, if, if we were really living in a holistic culture, we might have seven or eight rites of passages to mark the seven or eight major life phases that we go through. So the welcoming of life was the very first one. And the welcoming of life ceremony involves you know, it's 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 about connecting with spirit. It's about connecting with that thread of something that's actually meaningful and um, is outside the realm of the mind or even the heart, but really ultimately the spirit. And although, of course, it's connected with the heart. And so the welcoming of life ceremony involves bringing people together, a ceremony to acknowledge the birth of the child. Um, spiritually speaking, it's an opportunity to welcome the spirit of the child into the child's body and to bring all that together. When our sons were born, gosh, we, there was a lot of synchronicity. You know, one of the ways you know a ceremony is going well is synchronicity happens, right? What do you mean? Yeah. So, for example, when I remember when Forrest was born, we were living at Cedar Springs where we had the school for a lot of years. And as part of that welcoming of life ceremony, I remember taking him and holding him up, going outside and holding him up, kind of a Lion King moment, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. You got you to gotta do the music though, Tim. Hi, Hanya. <laughs> and presenting him to the world. And in that moment, no kidding, two things happened. First, a couple of white-tailed deer popped up from the ferns, I don't know, 50 yards away, and they, they looked over. And then at that same moment, a barred owl called out in the forest back behind our place. And it was eerie. I mean, I was like, hairs were going up on the back of my neck. And I, you know, it's a feeling thing, but the feeling was, oh, all of nature, all of life is witnessing his birth. They're helping welcome him. They're now, a barred owl is announcing it to the entire forest. And from that point forward, what was really interesting, Ben, was that Forrest had this very strong connection with owls and still does to this day. Like he can spot them and knows where they are when others don't. And it's kind of this uncanny connection that he's got that's a little hard to explain. Uh, River had his own version of that, right? That was one, one element of it. All right, let's talk ketosis. When your body turns out ketones, it is a state of metabolic efficiency, mental clarity, improved athletic performance, better metabolic health. The reason for that is that ketones are 28% more efficient at generating energy than sugar alone. That means you can do more with less. And ketones are usually made when your body's pushed to the limits, when it's deprived of carbs, when it's fasted, when it's had a whole, whole bunch of fat, coconut oil and butter and all the things. But you can also using the magic of science, shift yourself very rapidly into a state of ketosis that you'd normally have to fast for days to get into by supplementing with liquid ketones. You can usually drink ketones to do this. And there's one form of ketone brain fuel called ketone IQ, fittingly enough. And it is literally, quite literally, brain fuel. None of the insulin spikes or caffeine jitters or mid-afternoon energy crashes you get from most energy drinks. You just fuel with ketone IQ, one serving of this stuff, and it shifts you into the state of ketosis that you want, again, without being fasted or restricting carbohydrates. So it's almost like you get to have your cake and eat it too, 
Or if you're already into ketosis and you want to put the icing on the cake and get even deeper into ketosis, this stuff works fantastically for that too. It's made by HVMN. They created this stuff through a $6 million contract from the U.S. Department of Defense, deep partnerships with some of the top researchers in the ketone industry. It's a cutting-edge drink, and you get 20% off. Here's how. Go to hvmn.com and use code BENG20. That gets you 20% off any purchase of Ketone IQ. That's an exclusive offer for my listeners only. hvmn.com forward slash BENG. It's called Ketone IQ by HVMN. One thing you should know that's super cool is that on the evening of March 11th in Sedona, I'm hosting a VIP dinner that's catered by me and my family using a bunch of biohacked recipes from my Boundless Cookbook, live music, an intimate Q&A, and an absolutely unforgettable once-in-a-lifetime taste but entertaining experience where you just come and hang out with me. So we're hosting at our house with only 25 seats available. So it's going to fill up fast at a VIP dinner, only a select few. We want to keep this small, intimate, but super fun with amazing food. So if you want to get on the VIP dinner as a part of this event that I'm doing down in Sedona, go to bengreenfieldspeaking.com forward slash Sedona dash dinner bengreenfieldspeaking.com forward slash Sedona dash dinner. I've worked to achieve many things in life, but my greatest yet most humbling work, I think, has been with my role as a father. Parenting is blissful. It's brutal. It's far beyond anything I ever could have anticipated. My sons are now teenagers, and the people around us who engage with them often ask if I could write a book on raising children and education and legacy and discipline and all this stuff that goes into raising a good child, a good human. Now, I didn't feel that qualified to write a parenting guide. So I gathered a team of parenting superstars, dozens of my friends, entrepreneurs, authors, neurologists, psychologists, family coaches, a whole lot more. I got all their best tools, techniques, perspectives, habits on, again, everything from education to discipline to travel to rites of passage and beyond. And I put it all in one massive book that's like the guide to parenting. So it's now available. It's at BoundlessParentingBook.com, and that's where you can pre-order your copy today. So BoundlessParentingBook.com, it has been an absolute adventure putting this thing together. I think you're going to love it. You went on from the welcoming of life ceremony at birth, and I love that idea versus just a cold, stale hospital, take them home and kick them into, into the world versus this being very, very intentional and almost like sacred and reverent, right? We have a, we, we have a, a pretty big wedding, at least still in, in Western cultures and in most cultures, but it seems like that birth, there's, there isn't as much of a ceremony around it, which seems really weird when you think about it. But then you also had all these other rites of passages, that your sons went through, like a rite of competence and confidence at seven and a middle childhood rite of passage and a rite of passage into adolescence. And then eventually, even though they're not at that age yet, there'll be a rite of passage into adulthood. I'd love to hear a little bit more about these, these different rites. Like what, what's the one that happens at seven years old, the competence, confidence one? Yeah. So the rite of competence, confidence is acknowledging that a child has one foot still in childhood and kind of like at the hearth in the nest, but they're stepping out and they are acknowledged for things that they can do. So when our sons 
went through this ceremony, we acknowledged, hey, you can get dressed all by yourself. This is a big deal, actually. You can ride your bike now on your own successfully and safely and responsibly. And you can help out around the house. Mm -hmm. You know, so you are now just getting your foot into the space of I'm just starting to be a contributor and I'm an important needed part of this whole family unit and matrix. You know, when we did that, it was really, really important that we had somebody else lead and facilitate it, though, because we need to have space to just be the parents. So I went to our son's two most important, like key primary people outside of their parents. And for my son, River, it was for his kindergarten teacher. And at the time he went to a kindergarten and I went to her and I explained to her, hey, he's he's emerging in more responsibility. He's a helper around the house. And I sat down with her and talked to her about the design of this ceremony. And I said, hey, would you be the master of ceremonies for this? And I, I pretty much handed her the design and then I had her over. So it appeared to everybody like she was the one who was going to take this over. And then everybody said, OK, this is great. And she let it. I stepped away, you know, again, it's like crafting culture, but I don't need to be at the center of it. So I stepped out and she stepped in and she led the whole ceremonial process. Similarly for our other son, it was his adopted grandfather, Dave, and Dave came in and led an entire ceremony and we just were the parents. It's been intentional from the beginning that they'd have other people around them doing it. And then the actual ceremony is them going through a process of mindfulness with themselves and then they come back to all Some the solo time. Yeah, they had a little bit of solo time like one of for one of them it was as a spot in nature by themselves for the other one it was just being in a teepee and their grandfather Dave he asked Forrest questions to just consider in his heart that's a, that's what I heard him say in your heart I'd like you to feel these questions and then he'd come back to the circle and he would share from those questions and what was really cool about forest ceremony was after he had this alone time he returned and there was a fire we were all around a fire and dave led this process wherein forest's most special special childhood toy um, was put into the fire it was this little book that we had must have read like 50 times or 100 times it felt like just every day we'd read this book and even the older brother was sad to see the book go into the fire mm -hmm. like wow He's not just a little boy anymore. Like now he's getting to be a bigger boy. We're acknowledging that. And when these ceremonies are over, I noticed River has said several times, like, when are we going to do the next ceremony? Like, when can I do the next one? And so that acknowledgement, it's not just like, good job. You're doing a good job. It's actually an acknowledgement. Like we see you exactly. emerging and you're growing and it's not even like through words. It's like, we're all just showing up for you. And, it, and I say in these invitations to people, it's an incredibly vulnerable feeling to ask people to show up for your kids. And that idea of, of bringing others in too. I mean, it does take a little bit of trust as a parent, like just to bring my own flavor to this, when we brought River and Taryn out for their rite of passage, and kind of said goodbye to them and they got marched off with blindfolds off into the wilderness and we basically couldn't be there with them my wife and i we did have a rough time i mean there was like four days where we i think slightly longer than that where we hadn't heard from them and we had no clue where they were and we were nervous and my wife was crying and it's different than i don't know 
bringing your kids to basketball camp and you know you can call in and call out and zoom and skype at the end of the day or whatever turning over your children into the hands of someone else whether it's an elder or a mentor or someone like that i mean i guess people kind of sort of do that when they drop their kids off at school for eight hours a day and then you know assume at the end of the day the educational process is done which i think it'd be kind of a mistake, but it seems like there's something different about it when it's actual ceremony or rite of passage and you're just trusting someone else to, to take the reins, you know? I think what it's about, I kind of imagine it like you're taking your most precious little caterpillar and you're going to go ahead and just drop it into this cocoon space with other people who are going to like tend to it, you know, and take care of it. And it would be presumptuous to say that we know what the caterpillar is going to turn out to be like when it comes out. But there is this process of sitting in the waiting room and waiting for that emergence to happen. And it does take a lot of trust and patience and surrender and letting go for that process to, you know, and and really trust for that process to say like, oh my goodness, this caterpillar is going to come out. We don't know. It would be so kind of funny and scandalous to say we know what it's going to look like, but we have to wait. Yeah, their their middle childhood, you had another rite of passage. And I think that one involved uh, some kind of a, a hunt, right? Yeah, this was, a, I think, a, a less formal one. But as we talk about in the book, procuring food directly from nature is a, is a big value for us. I mean, talk about part of the work is always to to consider for us is what structures do we have in place that are going to facilitate connection? So from an early age... We modeled harvesting wild foods, going out for morel mushrooms or harvesting nettles in the springtime or uh, even just contributing to a garden salad with wild dandelions or chickweed, right? And so I got into hunting when the boys were little. I wasn't raised with hunting, but I got into it when the the boys were little. My dream for for a lot of years was actually to hunt with with a bow and arrow. But between running the school and being a dad and being a husband, it was just too much. So... I decided I was going to start hunting with a gun. And although it wasn't my my ultimate ideal, what it did was, of course, it, it allowed me to bring deer home. And oh my gosh, in those early years, you should have, the River and Forest would get so excited when I, <laughs> when I would leave. And then, of course, when I would come back and they'd always want a big update, when's dad getting back? Did he get a deer? Did he get a deer? And when I would bring a deer back, oh my gosh, super excited. And they would want to be there and they'd want to help with skinning it and butchering it and learning everything they could about this animal. You know, they'd play with the, the deer's feet and compare it in their mind's eye with the tracks they've seen previously in the sand, right? When they were, I don't know, yeah, nine or 10, right, this natural passion started to emerge. Well, gosh, when could I hunt? And so first, of course, it was with River. And so we got him a bow. And he had had a bow for a lot of years. Actually, it was, it was uh, his uncle, his adopted uncle, Daniel, who gave him his first bow. Um, so again, culture. And River was very excited. You know, we, had, we have snowshoe hair here uh, in rabbits right here in Idaho. And River was really excited and he wanted to know, okay, so what do I have to do? Well, I created this whole preparatory pathway. I said, well, you've got to think about how close are you going to be? So first, how close can you get to one of these animals? And he would, you know, spend days and days and weeks and weeks sneaking up, stalking on snowshoe hair. And he found that he could get within about 15 feet of them, much closer they'd run off. I said, okay, your range is 15 feet. Now you've got to get accurate with a bow and arrow on a target at 15 feet 
and be successful, you know, to hit, hit the vitals of a snowshoe hare, which is only maybe a four inch diameter circle at 15 feet, 50% of the time or better. Like that feels like ethical hunting to me, right? Yeah. So then he starts practicing. I'll tell you what, Ben, I mean, it was months and months and months of practicing, but you know, he wasn't just practicing for the fun of shooting a bow and arrow. Of course, it's a fun thing to do. He was practicing because he knew this was the step he had to make before he was going to be allowed to hunt. Yeah. So sure enough, he got his shot down and that, you know, that takes time. That's not easy to hit a four inch target half the time or better. I know. I, I practice a lot with my own sons to prepare them. We're preparing for a March hunt for access to right now. Exactly. In right. Hawaii. And typically a couple months prior, it was 12, 12 to 15 hours a day, every day, a lot of intention put into it to another great father son bonding activity. But just like we're doing breath work every day right now to prepare for a spearfishing trip we're going on in May, like that journey of practice leading up to some type of rite of passage or ceremony or scary thing. You know, I kind of sort of got a taste of that when I was, you know, I'd race Ironman triathlon, right? And I'd have months and months of preparation, swimming and biking and running and fueling and studying the course and the dynamics and the elevation and the, you know, the topography of the race. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of like that, that journey to the finish line starts so far prior. And for a young man or a young woman, having those certain spots built in intentionally throughout their upbringing that they have to practice for, they have to be ready for, you know, both mentally and physically and even spiritually. It's so important. It goes way beyond just like, you know, be ready for your math quiz on Friday or whatever. And so you can imagine, right? Like in the moment when he finally did shoot that snowshoe hair, it was incredible. I mean, I still remember that moment and he had like tears. It was this whole emotional mix of like incredible pride and happiness that he, his goal and then deep sadness that this beautiful rabbit has died, you know, that he really cares about those hair. He'd seen those hair for his whole life. And then when he came back, he processed the hide, he processed the meat, Shane, you helped him. And they made a, he made a beautiful snowshoe hair stew and then brought people together. And we did a giveaway, which you mentioned earlier, which is a, an, again, a traditional uh, part, kind of the ending portion of a rite of passage where you bring people together the, the person uh, is going through the rite of passage and they say, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give you gifts to as my way of saying, thank you for seeing me. Thank you for helping to raise me to this point in my life. So that's what he did. And he gave the whole thing away. Although he didn't keep any of that first snowshoe hair. And it was really hard. Yeah. But there's such a value in there of, of the give and take, the reciprocal nature with the earth, with community, with spirit. Yeah, I love that. It's so cool to, to to weave this type of activity in. And you and I, when we podcasted last time, Tim, and again, for people listening, if you go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash Corcoran's, C-O-R-C-O-R-A-N-S, you and I, Tim, talked about the rite of passage into adolescence and rites of passage into adulthood and even vision quests. And so I would encourage people to listen to like what goes on, you know, after maybe that, that middle adolescence, right? Because we already talked about a lot of that and we won't necessarily need to revisit that, but I do want to talk about some other traditions and habits and routines and rituals that I thought were really interesting and unique that you guys do. You talk a lot about how you spend regular time together as a family outside in nature as a key part of your, your children's upbringing and obviously a big part of their education as well. And that a lot of that is wildlife tracking and knowledge of wild edible and medicinal plants and wilderness survival skills. And like you mentioned, birding and, and harvesting huckleberries and morel mushrooms and, and then the archery that you talked about, the training in the early archery. But then you, you mentioned that you have this annual tradition of an ancestor supper. What's the annual ancestor supper? That's an annual coming together 
recognizing our ancestors, feeding them. So what we do is we create dishes that our ancestors ate. And one example of that is just a simple dandelion salad. So Tim's dad had a great, great grandparent who went out and foraged for dandelions and would make a salad just with a simple vinaigrette. And River and Forrest would write their grandfather a letter to find out, hey, what did our great-great-grandparents eat? So then he would write a letter back. This is just like through snail mail. And he would tell them the exact recipe and how she ate it and what she would do and who she was. And then that one year from getting that information, they went out, they gathered dandelions, and then they made that salad and we ate it that night. And then we'd acknowledge her. And like for that particular time, I remember we still have that letter. We put the letter on a little altar. Like, yeah, this was her. And he he had photocopied, their grandfather had photocopied a picture of her in this letter. So we put the picture there too. And before we eat, we make a plate and we put a little bite of each one of these dishes and we put it on that plate and we call it the first bite and we feed them first. And so on this altar, we might light a few candles. We have photos of them, maybe a special object that they had that got passed to us. And then we put the plate there so that they are joining us, eating with us. You know, and there are other cultures who who have these oh, yeah. ancestor suppers. They could they're called like ghost suppers and things like that. And they'll even go so far as to put fabrics over all the mirrors in the house because they say, wow, you know, we don't want those spirits to come in and like catch themselves, wow. seeing themselves in the mirror, you know? So, I mean, we don't go that far because like that's not our culture, but just to recognize the, these are powerful rituals of connecting mm-hmm. with those who came before you and knowing like one day you're going to be one of those people too. It's developing a relationship with death and life yeah. and what it takes to feed Uh, You know, life that is necessary in order to feed death and death that feeds life, you know, that whole cycle. Um, So that's a little bit about that ritual that we have. And if I can just jump in, right. So then you imagine a gathering with maybe 30 people and there's 20 different dishes representing 20 different sets of ancestors. And each person's got a story. Each person's got that special dish. Everyone brings a picture of the ancestors and we put them all together in front of the fire. And, you know, when you bring that kind of intention and, and that kind of effort together, magic happens, right? And it's, it's really interesting for me, Ben, we've been doing the ancestor supper for a lot of years. And in the early years, you know, we didn't have as many <laughs> ancestors uh, as we've gotten grown older. We've been doing this work for 20 plus years. Um, people have died. And, you know, at first there was a couple people in the community that passed away and we would add their pictures um, but I'll tell you what, man, last year, my uh, my mom passed away and it was a huge, huge thing for me. And after that, when I put out those little spirit plates, you know, those those first bites and when we do things like ancestor supper, the amount of meaning is like skyrocketed. I mean, I'm almost choking up right now thinking about it, honestly. But to know that, like, you know, I do believe my mom's spirit is still out there. Yeah, she passed away, but I do believe in this connection when I honor the ancestors in that way, it's taken on a whole new meaning. And River and Forest experienced that, and Janine does, and our whole community does. So as I've matured through the years, this this one has just taken on increasingly meaningful layers of depth for me. Yeah, I think in intentionally talking about death too, you know, what we've done with, with River and Taryn is we've all 
written down and planned out in the family constitution, our memorial service, our funeral, our end of life directives and our end of life wishes all the way down to what kind of food do we want at the memorial service? What kind of music? What are people going to be wearing? What will the emotions be like? Happy and joyful, you know, somber and, and reverent. And, and so they've all had a chance to sit down and map that all out as well as an obituary writing exercise. And, and, you know, the, this idea of, of thinking forward to one's death, of course, is not only meaningful as far as creating a more reverent appreciation for the passing of life and also for elders and young people. But I think that it also helps with purpose, like the understanding, oh, life is temporary. Is my time today best going to be spent on Minecraft or on using my God-given skills to create, you know, art that's going to inspire someone or make them laugh today, you know? I really appreciate you bringing this up because honestly, there's a lot we're competing with. And I'm not actually saying that those things like Minecraft are, are necessarily bad. Um, but, you know, again, it's all about just choices of where we want to put our focus, right? And so just as an example, this past fall when we were going to do Ancestor Supper, our one son really wanted to go trick-or-treating. You know, he's he's had that uh, for the past couple of years. We wouldn't always do this, actually, and engage in that. So my other son said, well, aren't we going to do Ancestor Supper? And I said, oh, it's kind of tough to compete with Halloween. You know, maybe we just won't do it. I, I, I said this to my son and he said, well, you know, mom, it's OK, because we actually eat a lot of these foods year round. My 16 year old said this. And so we can do Ancestor Supper any night we want, actually. Like it doesn't have to be on this one night. And that was that was profound for me to hear because it made me realize like, oh, yeah, you know, if you think about it generationally. That is how it worked. I mean, you're eating generations upon generations of ritualistic meals every day, you know, and the stories that are in the, those foods gathered and and whatnot. So for him to just have a glimpse into that and realize, yeah, we can we can do the first bite any night. We can serve the things we've forged that we know our ancestors forged for any night of the week. We could do that. Yeah, it kind of takes on a different meaning. You know, ritual isn't just an annual thing anymore. It's it's a it's a way of living. Yeah, yeah. Now, you have this annual ancestor supper, but then you also have I think you describe in the book as a weekly family night. Now we're big into family dinners at our house. I've talked about this on podcasts before. You know, our long family dinners with board games and card games and laughter and song and you know and a lot of intention brought into family dinner. But the weekly family night for you guys, what does that look like? Well, we meet once a week and we will have dinner. Do you have family dinners on more nights than just one though? Every single night. Okay. Yeah. Every single night. And um, the way we extend that is we put the food on the table. Okay. Like if the food is right there with you at the table, you're just going to stay there longer. We don't do that. And it's probably because, well, first of all, there's always games on the table and it'd be hard to squeeze the games and the food. Plus for me, it's like, it's a health thing. If you got to stand up to get seconds, you'll think more mindfully about just plating more food onto your plate. So, so ours is on the island in the kitchen counter and you just kind of got to stand up and go over to the kitchen counter if you want to plate up and get seconds. But any very, very small detail, but go ahead. For some reason with our group, it would be in reverse. Like I'd put it on the counter and as soon as they're done, the meal's over oh, for some reason yeah. and everybody yeah. takes off. So I just kind of hooked into that thinking like, oh, yeah, this is a little bit extra work. We got to put everything on the table. But when I did that, I noticed we all sat there longer talking. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know how to explain it, why, but that's what would happen. So that's intentional. We put all the food on the table so we stay there for longer. And then when we're done, 
we know that once we do cleanup, we're going to convene for a family meeting or some kind of experience we're going to have together. And a lot of times we end up having a council. It's like a talking circle type mm-hmm. of format where we're talking about big matters. Maybe we don't always agree on them and we're learning how to communicate with each other. As they get older, we're bringing in more subjects that hopefully through practice we have we can get more mileage out of out of our attention span with each other mm-hmm. and we're counseling about different really important topics. And I would say River and Forest have learned that in that context at our family home evening that we do once a week, it is a safe space. They know they can go there and bring up more sensitive topics that maybe they would feel a more hesitation to bring up at a different time. So over time, right, Ben, they've learned to trust that space and build a relationship with it where more can come out. Um, sometimes if there's difficulties, oftentimes strong emotions will come up at that time. If there's sadness or anger, sometimes that'll come up. Also, if there's something to celebrate, um, they love bringing you know, their wins to family home evening. I mean, I really got to give it to you, Janine, because you've really held the vision on that since the boys were little. I didn't have this growing up, but you got you guys did in your in your family of origin. And I still remember all the stories you would tell from from your family. And and so yeah, Janine brought this in really early and has really stuck to it. And it's gosh, through the years, it's just proved to be just a really simple, right? But really powerful, really impactful routine for our family. Yeah, we always have somebody open it up. It's kind of funny and simple, but we have somebody say, okay, welcome. <laughs> it is like a funny formal Start thing. With gratitude. But yeah, we we I ask our sons to open it up so they'll say welcome everybody in their unique way. And then we share gratitude. And then Tim will always bring us to intention setting. And the question is, how are you going to conduct yourself and how are you going to bring yourself to this that's going to contribute to positivity? And also so that we end on a good note. Mm-hmm. So we all each say what's our commitment. And then, you know, we have some announcements and whatnot, but then we get into the heart of something, usually pretty meaty, that we're counseling about. And there's also fun and games and awesome, yummy snacks and desserts and all kinds of good stuff. And Janine, you're also just expert at at bringing that element to it as well. I have a couple more questions for you. Beyond the weekly rituals and things like the annual ancestor suppers and the rites of passage, one of the ritual that kind of caught my attention that I think is kind of unique is the celebration of seasons. I think if you ask most young men and women walking around these days, they probably wouldn't know when or what the fall equinox is or like the winter solstice. Tell me about the seasonal rituals though and and how you've woven those in. My favorite really is when we go ricing in the fall. Ricing. Ricing, yeah. So we're going out to forage for wild rice. We take our canoe out, we go to this lake can't tell you what it is because <laughs> you know, it's a top secret location. <laughs> but that's usually on the fall equinox, um, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. it's usually on the fall equinox literally that day. And we go out and we gather rice in the canoe. And it started with four of us. And I have to say it hasn't always been all four of us on that day because when you gather rice, it's actually incredibly itchy. And so sometimes there's a few people who will like scoot out and they're like, I'm kind of busy that day. But we always come back. And often we make a fire and we cook the wild rice after we process it. And then we're eating it throughout the year, too. That's what marks the fall equinox for me and and, and for those who go. You yeah, know. that's one example. Um, Janine and I actually got married on the summer solstice, so June 21. Our wedding anniversary is actually on <laughs> one, of the, one of the solstices. That helps. Uh, winter solstice is always a big one since the boys were little. 
And this was a pretty countercultural move, I remember, especially early on, like, oh my gosh, because I was raised with Christmas and New Year's and the whole thing. And but we really have attempted to bring more meaning back to these things. You know, that Christmas is more than just presents or Thanksgiving is more than just a turkey. Like, what's the meaning here? What is this all about? How can we bring a richness of culture to these experiences? So we have a whole ritual around the winter solstice and going out together and sharing reflections and acknowledging. Janine always leads a beautiful candle light ceremony. We have all the lights off, so we're really with darkness and then uh, you have a chance to be with your candle and, and set an intention for the year. But it's it's taking time and pausing and slowing down and acknowledging these changes, right? Like, man, when it's winter solstice, we just went through that one, right, a couple months ago. Yeah. And it's like a 16 hours of darkness and eight hours of light. And you really get into that. There's a silence in there. There's a pause, a deeper pause. We can almost feel the earth standing still for a moment. And in that is this incredible amount of rest. And uh, oftentimes traditional wisdom would tell us that the veil between worlds thins during this time. So oftentimes like strong dreams will come through or again, odd synchronicities will pop up. Uh, maybe not so coincidentally, but at each of the, of the four seasons, we do so, the two equinoxes and the two solstices. We do something as a family to mark those. And it, it helps locate us right. And on an annual basis, where am I at? And how is the season externally reflected inside of me? What's the quietness I'm going into? It gives permission to slow down and pause in a culture that is obsessed with doing and accomplishing, right? Or in the height of the summer, when it's 16 hours of light and eight hours of days, it gives us permission to really express and celebrate fully and just, you know, it's summer. I mean, just go for it all the way. And then those transition times with the equinoxes. So... Yeah, that's been a big one too. By the way, for people listening in who have no clue about equinoxes and solstices, basically there's there's four of them. Like in mid-March, the day and night are of equal length. And that's the spring or the vernal equinox is what that's called. Then there's the summer, the longest day of the year, usually in June. I know that one because it's close to my wife's birthday. And then there's another day and night of equal length in the autumn. That's the autumn equinox. And then the winter is the shortest day of the year. We also, like in our house, we try to give some recognition to another way to split up the year, which for us being, uh, you know, Reformed Protestant Christians, you know, we've got like Advent and Epiphany and Lent and Easter. And so there are seasons of a church calendar as well. There are many ways to split up a year, have comings and goings during the year, but yet again, a small, subtle shift in the way that we parent, you know, from parenting through nature immersion, through parenting with rituals and traditions and rites of passages, through parenting with honoring of the elders, through parenting with seasonal ceremonies or religious ceremonies. I just think that it's kind of one of those posts, probably like, I don't know, post-reformational, scientific, logical, materialistic era type of consequences that we just don't seem to have that type of reverent observation of the comings and goings of human life and the planet woven into a child's upbringing. But I think it's, it's such an important thing. I, I think it, it really helps to break up a year. That seems like a really trite way to put it, but it just gives, I think, especially a young human being and this idea of tradition, something firm and something reliable that they can lean upon almost like the safety of predictability not in a we don't ever want our kids to you know go out and do dangerous things type of way, but more in a way that allows them to know when it is, what season it is, what time it is, what's coming next, what are they preparing for, 
What have they learned from previous ceremonies? And I just think it's a fantastic way to grow, not only as a kid, but to continue those type of traditions as, as you become an adult, you know? Absolutely. And I just want to add to that, Ben, so 100% agree with you on all that. And it gives them an opportunity to notice those same changes occurring inside themselves. And it gives them permission to be with the changes, the evolutions, the transformations that they too are, that we all are undergoing, right? So there's that mirror effect, which is a subtle thing. But over time, when kids are surrounded by that and given permission, you know, they're more well-adjusted, they have better nervous system regulation, they're healthier in mind, body, heart, and spirit. Yeah, yeah. I think that a lot of people are probably listening and they're like birding, going out in canoes for wild rice, (laughs) teaching your kids using weeds and mushrooms. That's weird. Your kids are going to be weird. They're going to get out (laughs) in the real world, bro, and have a total shocking moment of realization when they're trying to navigate through, you know, the crazy complex world of AI and VR and GPT and, you know, almost like this digital existence or this more complicated existence that a lot of human beings almost have to prepare for now. Do you ever get concerned or do you ever think about, gosh, what are kids going to like do or be when they grow up, so to speak? Or are they just going to be like little, you know, they're going to go win, I don't know, uh, alone or naked and afraid and just live (laughs) off the live off the winnings of conquering a bunch of wilderness TV shows? (laughs) Yeah, we've watched a few of those. Those are fun. For sure. I definitely feel concerned at times. Not going to pretend like I don't. I think that we are living in a world now that is very different than 30, 40 years ago when I was young, like that, you know, like a kid or a teenager. And they're entering a world we maybe can't even fully comprehend. And we're just getting it started. So when I think about that, we're like on the bell curve of where we're just getting going on on the digital world and technology. I do see though that with our two kids, they're interested in that too. Oh yeah. Like they they want to learn how to navigate it. I mean, one of our sons is trying to build his own channel online and and present content on birding and hunting and yeah. being outside in the wilderness. And I found a tutor for him because he does better when I'm not his teacher in schooling 100%. And she sat down with him and he crafted a vision statement for himself. And he said, the six, our 16-year-old son, he said, yeah, I want to create online content for people so that it will inspire them to go out into nature yeah. and see birds. I don't know how long it'll take him to be fully successful and what his measure of success is for that, what he would define as his measure of success. But he's on that journey of learning how to navigate through this world. And I think sometimes it can be scary for him, but he is he is trying to figure that out. Yeah. And that's awesome. You know, when he crafted, crafted that vision statement, I realized like, oh, okay, he has had a foundation and he is trying to figure out how to move through the modern world still. And that's really the spirit behind it, Ben, is our philosophy really is to support them to walk in two worlds, you know, that there there is this older world of nature that is still right here, right at our back door. And there is this modern world. And of course they're going to have to face that. Of course, it's still the year 2023. Like there's no getting out of that. Nor do I suggest that anyone should try, but there's something important and valuable about having this foundational element of deep nature connection in place that supports whole human development so that when they do interface with the greater world and technology and all of that stuff, 
that they're going to have a chance. I mean, that's that's the basic philosophy here that we're operating behind is this is valuable for whole human development. And we've seen that time and time again. Parents like yourself and hundreds and hundreds, thousands, honestly, of others whose kids come to our programs and they tell us, oh, my God, this is like medicine for my soul. My kid comes back so much healthier and happier and fully alive and excited and their depression and anxiety is down. That's a known phenomenon. These are actually measurable phenomenon that that exist. And so what we've said is, okay, we've put a lot of our chips in on this nature connection piece. Clearly, it is paying off. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, River is, I think, as the oldest, he's really kind of followed in our footsteps more. It is following in our footsteps more. He's very passionate. Yeah, birder and hunter and and he's yeah, he's got two YouTube channels that he's he's working on and creating content and. Uh, and Forrest, you know, he's much more socially oriented. So he actually started at our local charter school this year, seventh grade. And he, that was, he wanted to try that out. Yeah, he wanted to try that out because he was saying, hey, I need more social interactions. And so now he's navigating all of that. And that was a big piece. It was big for Janine and I both to let go. It was hard, but we did. And he is turning into this amazing human being who's finding his values. He's got such a big heart. He moves and kind of operates in those social circles a lot more than rivers. So, so yeah. So, I mean, is is there a risk? Yeah, but gosh, I mean, what's the opposite? Like we raise them with technology from birth. Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there a risk there? Absolutely. And would I be more worried <laughs> if I had done that? Heck yeah. Yeah, I have the same feelings about River and Tara. And you know, for example, they have a cooking channel. They have a cooking podcast. They have a social media account for you know, running that they're, they're starting to design a game company now, shout out to fried pickle games. And so they're, they're taking a lot of the stuff that we do. We cook, we eat, we enjoy nature. You know, we play pickleball. We have these family games and they are using some amount of digital communication to bring others into that joy that they've discovered. And I think that's the perfect way to, to use the digital world is, is the icing on the cake to a largely analog existence. Now, I know that we didn't talk a lot about this during our discussion over the past hour, but for those of you who are curious and who want to learn more about Tim and Janine's approach, of course, it's heavily detailed in the Boundless Parenting book, shameless plug at boundlessparentingbook.com. But then also these programs that they run, people, I have friends, uh, folks I know, they fly in from all over the country to attend one of these Twin Eagles Wilderness School wilderness survival camps or rite of passage or vision quests or deep nature immersions or summer camps or spring camps or even winter camps where they build snow tunnels. And it's it's an amazing time. And I would encourage any of you who haven't yet visited their website, the Twin Eagles Wilderness School website, to check out what it is they're doing and to get involved. Or even though you may have to do a little bit of vetting, look up a similar wilderness school or nature immersion school in your area. If you can't get out to like North Idaho or Spokane, even though I'll of course vouch for Tim, there are other great places like, you know, I know Boulder has the boss school and you know, there, there's, um, you know, t- some Tom Brown schools in the Northeast. And there's, there's all sorts of ways that you can get your kids involved with something like this. Another person you might want to look into who I'll be interviewing later on is Katie Bowman. She's got a lot of good writings and a great book I was recently reading on raising a child in the wild, or at least introducing more wilderness immersion into their upbringing all the way down to what kind of clothes you give them so they can climb trees better. And so 
Check out Tim and Janine's Twin Eagles Wilderness School. I'll link to that in the show notes at bengreenfieldlife.com slash corcorns, or you can go to twineagles.org and read their chapter in the book. If, if this really got you thinking about rites of ceremony, about rites of passage, about traditions and rituals, then we've really only scratched the surface of what's detailed in the book. So be sure to check that out. Tim and Janine, I'm so grateful to know you as friends and so grateful that you were able to come on and, and share some of your parenting wisdom uh, from a very unique perspective with us. Thank you so much, Ben. Uh, we really appreciate this connection with you and your family and Jessa and, and River and Taryn. And uh, yeah, really grateful for this opportunity. Thank you, Ben. Awesome. I'm super happy we're able to record this. And again, for those of you listening in, bengreenfieldlife.com slash Corcoran's. Until next time, I'm Ben Greenfield, along with Tim and Janine Corcoran, signing out from bengreenfieldlife.com. Have an amazing week. All right. You may have heard the rumblings about this event as actually happening. So get out your calendar. March 10th through the 12th, March 10th through the 12th, 2023, of course, I am doing a big event in the hotspot of Sedona, Arizona. If you haven't been to Sedona, it's amazing. The hiking is amazing. The food is amazing. The energy is amazing. And my friend, two-time former podcast guest and an amazing expert in breath work and self-discovery in movement and all the cool things that happen as far as like body, mind, spirit connection down there in Sedona is putting on an event, her grand opening event at this place called Shine in Sedona. And I'm going to be there giving a keynote talk, teaching you all about breath work and biohacking, but that's not all. She has so many experts coming in. We have a freaking cacao ceremony. If you've ever done a cacao ceremony, it's drinking really good chocolate in a very ceremonial way. You're going to love it. They got mind-body reset sessions using quantum energetic technologies, infrared rays, negative ion therapy, crystals, these special mats that you lay on as you do special forms of breath work. They've got a heart expansion coaching session where you actually learn using neurofeedback technology how to guide and modulate your nervous system. The list goes on and on, but what's cool is there's even a VIP dinner with me. I'm bringing my entire family to Sedona and we are going to cook you a Greenfield style home dinner right at a private location. It's a VIP part of this experience. Not only that, but my sister is going to be playing live music there. So the whole thing's just going to be amazing. Anyways, if you want to get in, we're only opening up the dinner to 25 guests and Shine has limited space. So tickets are very limited for this. They're going to go fast. And again, it's coming up quick, March 10th through the 12th. You can fly into Phoenix if you need to get to the area. If you're already in Phoenix or the Sedona area, you know where you're going. So here's the address, bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash Shine Sedona. That's bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash Shine Sedona. You can get in, you can grab your ticket. There's different ticket levels. There's the tickets for the VIP dinner experience. You can even attend virtually at a fraction of the cost if you can't make it there live, even though there's a lot of cool things happening, of course, if you are there live. So one more time, bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash Shine Sedona. If you don't know how to spell Sedona, just go Google that. Shine Sedona, I hope to see you there. More than ever these days, people like you and me need a fresh, entertaining, well-informed, and often outside-the-box approach to discovering the health and happiness and hope that we all crave. So I hope I've been able to do that for you on this episode today. And if you liked it, or if you love what I'm up to, then please leave me a review on your preferred podcast listening channel, wherever that might be, and just find the Ben Greenfield Life episode. Say something nice. Thanks so much. It means a lot.